today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, we had our uh, Chiefs Town Hall. Chief of Police Eric Gert was in here, and uh, we spent a little bit of time talking about the upcoming uh, legalization of marijuana and, uh, well, obviously the the role that police are going to play in enforcement. And uh, and it's many-sided, obviously, of course, about illegal grow-ups, about selling the stuff, but also about people that uh, could be under the influence. And, and it's an ongoing problem, obviously. Well, Ottawa apparently has approved a first roadside testing device to screen drivers for whether or not they are driving high. Uh, there's still some skeptics about this as to whether or not this is going to make the police job any easier. Klaus Wagner is a, a constable, of course, traffic specialist with Hamilton Police Services, who's been doing an awful lot of research uh, in preparation for what's going on and will be happening this October. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us his take on that. Klaus, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Like always, Bill, thanks for helping us out here. Well, this is this is pretty important because, as I was mentioning to the Chief yesterday, I mean, there's a lot of speculation about what's going to be happening, who's going to dispense this stuff, how this is going to get you know set out. Uh, and, and they basically turn to you guys in police services and say, oh, by the way, enforce this stuff, okay? We're not quite sure how, but you guys, you know, work on it. and get. Uh, there are a lot of questions here, not a whole lot of answers. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about how you guys are going to approach this uh, on, a, on a street level. So, as you know, Bill, it, I mean, drug and driving has always been in the criminal code, and we've always tested for things like that. Uh, back in the day, there were different ways, and now that we have what we call our drug recognition evaluators, which is a full testing process that we've talked about uh, to, to determine what drug category is in the person's body that's impairing them. But then also, because of the new legislation that's coming in, um, we have over 52 standardized field sobriety test officers, so SFSTs as we call them. Um, and it's very famous, really, for anybody that's a sports fan, when the Tiger Woods incident happened and they showed some video from the, the state troopers, him doing walking the line. That's at the side of the road. No different than back in the, that we still use for alcohol, where we just have the little roadside device. And it's an evidential tool, and that's all the SFSTs are, and that's all whatever instrument they do approve eventually uh, for police services to have. It's just an evidential tool it's to say there is some drug in their system, and now um, it would give us the opportunity to uh, do the full drug recognition evaluation if, uh, if necessary. So it's just an evidential tool, but as you know, G1, G2, and under 22 drivers have to have zero alcohol and zero drug, not just marijuana, zero drug in their system while they're behind the wheel of a car here in Ontario. So from that standpoint, then, it, it doesn't much matter what is impairing them. It's just all you're at that point trying to do is determine that something is. Exactly, and it, and it goes along too with the officers' observations. You know, all the all the things that you know people have known for years. You know, is the car drifting on the line? Is it not stopping? Is it going too fast? Going too slow? You know, and sometimes those are just sometimes are just bad drivers. That's why when the officer comes up, you know, they have to keep an open mind. Do, do they smell some alcohol? Is there something else impairing by the activity of the person showing? They're you know they're they're very lethargic or they're stumbling around or they talk are they on some type of uh, uh, a drug that's making them hyper, and so they're you know they're very talkative, very active, and stuff. So the officer puts all those things together, and then either makes a demand to do a roadside test, either alcohol or one of these SFSTs, or if there 
there is an approved drug uh, uh, device that, that we are going to use, we'll use that. And then that'll give us evidence to say, yes, they are on something and we'll go the next step to either charge them with impaired by drug or alcohol or impaired uh, over the legal limit. Plus, there's going to be some new charges with uh, the combination of drugs and alcohol. We're going over some old ground because, as you and I have talked about in the past, I mean, a lot of what you're talking about here applies to people that are impaired by alcohol as well. So uh, the, 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 the officer on the street at that scene, whether it's a ride program, whether it's a, a traffic policeman that's, or police officer, rather, that, as you say, may have seen some behavior that, that warranted them to, to find out exactly what was going on here. Uh, what tools do they have at their disposal on site? I, I know that you know at, at some point you may make the determination you've got to go to the police station and get further testing. But what can you do there? So um, at the side of the road, if it's if it's the smell of alcohol and, and that's what they're they're basing what they're going on, they'll use what we call a roadside device or a screen uh, screen uh, sorry alcohol screening device, and it gives. Uh, three different sets of values. So for um, from 0 to 49, it gives us an exact value of alcohol that's in a person's uh, in person's body. And those are for G1, G2, and under 22 drivers because they can have zero. The regular driver, if there's a number in there, they're, they're, we, they're fine to go. After 50 to 100, that is where an administrative driver's license suspension kicks in. Three, seven, or thirty days uh, at the side of the road, uh, you get your license suspended. It's not a criminal charge; it's just a driver's license suspension. If a F comes up, a fail comes up, then they're arrested for having over the legal limit in their system, and they're brought in the station for the big test. And it's going to be the same for 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 drugs in their system. So, like I said, it's the SFSTs, that standardized field sobriety test. So, if the officer is not one of the ones trained, they will call for a trained officer. They will come to the side road. Uh, administer, walk the line, touch the nose, they'll do an eye check. Um, and if the person does poorly, they could get one of those three, seven, or 30-day driver's license suspension. If they fail, they'll be brought in for the full test. And if they fail that, a um, uh, blood sample or urine sample will be taken, and they'll be charged with impaired due to a drug in their system. And, and uh, what, what, if they refuse, is, what if they refuse to do the test? So just like alcohol, refusing is an automatic charge, and all the same penalties the, uh, that, that would be... A, if you would have been found um, uh, failing any of the other tests, it's all the same things. A 90-day driver's license suspension, your car, the car that you were driving, and I always try to make sure people, I emphasize that, the car you were driving. If it's a business car, if it's the company truck, whatever, it gets towed and impounded for seven days, and there's no there's no way to go to the ministry and get that back out early. It's, it's a mandatory seven-day impoundment, which is $840 at the minimum to get that car back out here in Hamilton. Now, listen, I, I know you're not a lawyer, but you've been down this road, excuse the bad metaphor yep. here, many, many oh, times. Yep. Uh, when when the, the ride program started, when the breathalyzers were, were being utilized, uh, there were court challenges, and some people said, well, you can't do this. And, and it, 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 we've done that, right? and the courts have already yep. ruled on that. Uh, are we going to go through the same thing again with, uh, with this kind of legislation? For some of the new stuff, like if if we do use an instrument at the side roads, so these saliva tests and things like that, yeah, there's always going to be because that's that's what that's what it is all about. The standardized field sobriety testing and the DRE has been around here in Canada. Well, here in, you know we've been doing it since 2010, but it's it started in 1979. It was approved by the International Chiefs of Police. It's used all over the world. It's it's been challenged. Uh, it comes back. Most of the officers um, uh, in other countries are sometimes deemed 
trained experts in the field. We, they don't do that here in Canada or here in Ontario right now. It's um, they're just it's just like an instrument. They're, they give their evidence, and uh, you know it can be challenged. But uh, we have a very high conviction rate, and it's and people have to remember it's not. It's not if you're just on your your medication properly. The people that we charge for impaired by drug very, very, very often have a whole bunch. They have some alcohol in their system. They also have the 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 you know maybe their prescription drug on them that they shouldn't have been combining with alcohol, or they have some illicit drugs. And it's a combination. It's you know I mean you have to always remember you know it's it's never one hundred percent as in. It's just one drug. The people we charge for impaired driving have high al- high amounts of alcohol. They have high amounts of drugs that way. When somebody's charged with impaired, and I know I, I can't get into exact details here, but yeah. I mean, just uh, from your experience, uh, let's let's talk about that about prescription drugs because I mean that's something that I think a lot of people just don't pay much attention to. Uh, but clearly, if you're on pain medication or any number of other things, uh, we all see that oftentimes with prescription bottles, you know, do not operate heavy machinery. Well, vehicles, exactly. uh, vehicles uh, that, that is an impaired charge if, if they were under the influence. If, if, it's, if, if it's the point, like I said, and that's why when I go out and, you know, you know Bill, I speak all over the province and, and in the states, um, that's one of the big things I try to say to people for, for, for those types of things. You know, if you're on a new medication, you have to listen to the pharmacist. You have to listen to the doctor. A lot of times they'll tell you, this is a brand new medication to you. It may have a little bit of effect. Don't take it when you know you're going to be driving somewhere. Maybe take it at home when you know you're going to have a, you know, to see how you react to it. And, you know, you're not supposed to mix alcohol with it or other drugs. And, and you know, but it's human nature sometimes. Again, like I said, the people we stop aren't the ones that are following their prescription properly. It's the ones that are following their prescription and they're saying, you know, a friend at work is saying, ah, oh, those things are no good. These are better. <laughs> and they, you know, they, and they take maybe a couple of their friends' pills, or they put a combination with alcohol. Plus, you know, maybe, uh, you know, because they're on new medication, they're, they're sleepy. And, you know, so it's the whole combination of all this stuff uh, is, is, you know, and the numbers come in and they become impaired that way. And right now, a lot of drugs don't have a number like alcohol does, where we have the over A rate. That's called a per se limit. It's proven that at 50 milligrams of alcohol, you're impaired. You know, I mean, you're impaired. It's scientifically been proven. So now you add, as the new charges are, two nanograms of THC in your system. That's going to be a new charge. Uh, five to ten is a charge. and Anything over ten of, of, of drugs in your system and in alcohol is going to be impaired driving. It's, it's, you know, these are all things that are coming in that way, and people need to understand. This uh, device that Ottawa has given the thumbs up to now, it's called the Drager Drug Test 5000. Uh, it's yeah. a handheld device that tests saliva for THC. Is, it, is this the one you were talking about about a month or so ago that uh, you were concerned about in cold weather? No. Um, well, there was. There's. They they tested. Uh, P, uh, Tor- sorry, Toronto and the OPP, and I think York, I might be mistaken there, they did a test um, about a year and a half ago on a couple of different devices um, and to see their accuracy and things like that. So, And those those ones are still going through some testing process. So um, I'm a little, was a little... Uh, surprised when I saw that come out from the Liberals because there is a process here um, how these things get put into just like the, as everybody calls them, the breathalyzers or the intoxilizers and, this, and the roadside device. They have to go through a stringent 
uh, system to make sure that they're they're operable and in and in you know in all weathers here in Canada. That's why they you know the one that we have here in Canada, the intoxilizer, the big instrument, um, is called the 8000C for Canada. It's tested and and the stuff that's using it are for Canadian uh, laws and to make sure it's it's good for our climate and stuff like that. So um, you know even though the, the Liberals have said this is the one, there's still a process before we would um, you know start to look at these different things that way. Um, you know, and that and that's a, and that's the things we're going to look at. You know, when is it can be used? You know, um, you know, do they, you know, can they be kept in the cruiser? Or do, you know, because there's always a time thing here. Like the roadside, that was one of the big things when we first started using roadside instruments. Is it says forthwith. So if I demand that you provide a sample into the roadside, I need to have it there. You know, and and here in Hamilton, you know, some some judges might say, well, five minutes for you to wait for one to come is too long. You're holding this person up on the side of the road uh, improperly. You know, against their charter rights. So these are the things that we're going to have to look at. Because when you had that conversation with us a while ago, I mean, I did do some work on, you know, I Googled it, obviously, but yeah. uh, they said the recommended usage for this was between 4 and 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, <laughs> the temperature in the wintertime here gets a lot colder than, than plus 4. And I'm just yeah. wondering about the efficacy of something like this and, and whether or not these things are going to get tossed out in court. And that, and that's and that's what I'm saying. That's why there's still a process to go through to before it gets approved to be in the criminal code as one of the instruments. And these are the things that they'll look at uh, that way, especially in our in our province. That's why I said it'll you know will it have to be one of these things where you know it's kept in the inside the cruiser where it's warm, and then you're going to be brought into the cruiser. Well, you know there's always those challenges that my client felt he was under arrest or she was under arrest once they get in the cruiser. These are all the things that we're going to be looking at, and that's why we like the process we have right now with the standardized. So that's we have 52 right now. We're hoping to get 60 more before the end of the year. Uh, you know, to have three, four officers on every squad that have this uh, this training and uh, that's that's tried and, and proven and, and been and is held up in court challenges. So you know, we're going to look at that. You know, to keep our impaired program. Uh, as strong as it can be. Klaus, I just got an email from one of our listeners, Brad, who's listening to our conversation here at bkelly at 900chml.com, uh, asking, what about possession? Uh, obviously, possession is illegal right now after October. When you peer into that car to see what that person is doing and, and make your evaluation, uh, if you see a little baggie of something there, I mean, obviously, you know, that's that's got to be taken into consideration. It's technically going to be legal to have pot at that stage, but there's a, a, I guess we're getting into how much is going to be in the bag, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, and transporting it has to be, it's going to be almost the same rules kind of like it is to transport alcohol. Um, you know, you can go pick up your uh, your container at the, you know, you'll get, as of October 17th, it'll be sent to you in the mail. If you're transporting your car, it, the seal can't be broken. If the seal's broken, then it has to be in locked luggage out of the way of the driver. Um, if it's a medical... Not, not on the seat beside them not on the seat beside them. And again, like I've always said, it's no different than alcohol. Just because I see a, a, a case of beer in someone's car, that doesn't mean they're impaired. I have to look at the whole totality of everything that, as we talked, you know, stumbling, you know, slurred speech, all those different things that way. So, you know, it's all, people always have to understand, it's not just because you have possession of something that an officer's going to make an arrest because we're wasting everybody's 
everybody's time. That's why even on the roadside, we go from 50 to 100. We don't arrest you at 81 milligrams because by the time you come down and do a test on the big instrument, you know, you've lost a little bit of your blood alcohol. We're wasting everybody's time. So we're always going to, it's always erring on the side of, you know, if you want to call it the defendant or the person, the subject we're dealing with. It's always in their favor. It truly is. I've been doing it for, you know, for 30 years now, and the last 15 has been dedicated to traffic. It's always in the benefit of that. But people need to understand what the new laws, and you, you can find it online. They can go on um, and see that, you know, transporting, and if anybody's, you know, especially if it's kids, anybody under 19 can have, and they're, it's powerful legislation. If I see someone that has, you know, some marijuana in the car and they're underage, I can search that vehicle and search the people in the vehicle. So, you know, they have to understand that stuff. It's almost like alcohol. You're going to have to have it put away so it can't be in, near the driver. Listen, I don't want you to give away trade secrets, but what are you looking for when you make a stop and you poke your head in there? I mean, uh, with alcohol, as you mentioned, sometimes it's obvious. There's a smell on the breath or, or something like that. But uh, is, is this a different situation altogether? Well, if, if, if we worry just, I mean, and I don't want to stick with the cannabis, but that is the big thing right now because of the legislation coming in. So, you know, cannabis, when you're high... You know, I mean, I'm not talking you just take a couple of drags. When you're high, you know, your eyes are going to have some redness to them uh, in, the, in the blood veins. Your, di- your pupils are going to be dilated. Uh, your reaction time is going to be slower and methodical. Those are the things. And you have to always, people always have to remember, as I always say, as we always jokingly say to recruits when they first get on the job, you know, you know, you've stopped one car, I've stopped 10,000 cars. You're going to start to notice little things. You're going to, the more times you, you deal with people, you start to see a rhythm in conversations. When I pull somebody over for just a, say, a, you know, speeding ticket or stop sign ticket, there's a rhythm. I walk up, they answer questions, we get information. When you're dealing with somebody that, that is under the influence of alcohol or some type of drug, you know, there's different, all of a sudden you can see that there's thinking going behind it, answering every question. There's, you know, they're, they're slower, they're methodical. Maybe the reaction when they have to lean over to, to get into their glove box to get their ownership and stuff, it's much more exaggerated because of the alcohol or the drug in their system. Those are the things we're looking for. And that is, that forms my grounds to believe they're impaired by something in their body. And, and again, just to reiterate, uh, once this does come into play here, not every officer who's going to be out on the on the, the road uh, is going to have the equipment to do this, but they can initially, uh, if they see something going on, they can pull you over and at least make an initial observation. Just like we do now with alcohol, you know, uh, not every car has a, a roadside device in it, you know, but they're out on the road and, and they just call them, and, and one of their uh, one of their squad mates will will bring it over to them. Uh, like I said, in a timely fashion. Yeah, you know, it's like I said, it's not nothing new to us that way. It's just the way some of the new charges and some of the new things that are coming in and getting more and more officers. You know, uh, you know, ultimately, what we would truly like to have is, you know, when you get on patrol, you know. You're trained as an SFST, not always as the full program, but at, at, the, at the side of the road, it's another thing in your tool belt to look and, and help you that way. And it's, and it's not hard to do that way, and uh, it's very successful. It's very amazing. When I went through the program in 2010, you know, I used to, I used to bug my daughter and her friends when they come over to our house all the time. And, you know, it's for practice if they've had some alcohol in their system just to, to show them that it, that it works. Well, it's uh, obviously going to have an impact on the court system. We know that, and that means you guys are going to have to spend more time in court as well, which I know can be a frustrating experience. But uh, uh, I guess the best way to avoid a lot of the uh, world that's going on here and the questions about this is, uh, as your former boss, uh, Glenda Carey, used to say, compliance is free. 
Uh, 100%, Bill. I believe in it truly, truly. I've always said that. You know how I'm a big proponent of, you know what, Uh, why put yourself, make the decision before you leave your house. I cannot stress that enough. If you know you're going to be doing this, how are, I mean, how am I going to get home? Because you're not going to make the right decision once you're under the influence. Klaus Wagner, uh, he was hoping that you don't find him on the street, poking his head in there trying to find out what's going on. Always appreciate <laughs> the time. because I do whatever it takes. <laughs> Pretty much. And by the way, you were great in the video. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, uh, we got a scoop. We'll talk again later. Thanks again, Klaus. All the best, Bill. Klaus Thank Wagner, you. traffic specialist for Hamilton Police Services. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is one issue that that's seemingly is dominating the conversation, uh, especially when it comes to the race for mayor. And, of course, that's light rail transit and, and whether or not we're actually going to go forward on this. And I, I, there's a polarizing debate that's going on still about this, uh, about who's going to win this thing. And, I, by the way, a little bit later on, we're going to open the lines up, and I want to find out if LRT is going to be the defining issue for you. Is is that the issue that's going to determine who you are going to support in this election, whether it's for city council or for mayor? Uh, we'll do that. I'll give you some advance notice on that when we're going to jump in with uh, phone calls. But I want to bring John Best into the conversation. He, is, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer. Now, John has been following this file for a long, long time now. John, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. I know that officially, I guess the campaign doesn't really get going in earnest until after Labor Day. But uh, the, the Peach Festival was on. There was Festival of Friends. In other words, wherever there's a gathering of more than five people, uh, there's going to be a candidate out there shaking hands. So the, the, it's game on as far as they're concerned. Absolutely. And uh, all of those festivals, and there's still, you know, two or three more to, to come in the next uh, couple of weeks. But they have definitely been the, uh, the crux of, uh, of campaigning at this point, and uh, particularly at the mayoralty level. So yeah, it's uh, you're right. It's uh, election season is in full swing, and uh, whether you know the conventional wisdom was that it always was not to start until after Labor Day, but I think you know in a in an election like this where where there really is a lot of polarization, it's it's starting. It started. Uh, it started three weeks ago, probably. It, and it's interesting. I, somebody asked me about how come there's no signage up yet. I think the, the actually the, the bylaw here says they can't do it until after Labor Day. That's uh, right. Because I've been to some other jurisdictions. I mentioned I was up north last week and uh, down in, in the Collingwood Blue Mountain area. There, there, there are signs all over the place now. But it, it, that changes from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But but that doesn't mean, as we mentioned, they're not already campaigning and trying to get some votes. Do, do you get that sense, John, that 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 transit and light rail transit, and I'm going to combine those two. Uh, they are not mutually exclusive, uh, is, is really going to be the ballot box issue? Well, I, I think it is, uh, uh, you know, and, and clearly, the, uh, you know, the game changer was the provincial election. If, uh, if that hadn't uh, happened the way it did, and if, um, if uh, Mr. Ford hadn't made it clear that he was flexible on how that money got spent, then this would be probably just uh, another sort of ho-hum election. But with that prospect, uh, sitting there, and it's been repeated two or three times. Uh, it, it's it's a real prospect now, and uh, certainly that that changes the game. And you can see it. I've talked, you know, privately to some sitting members of council and some candidates for council, and clearly it's uh, it's changing the calculus on on how they view the whole I- infrastructure issue. Because if you if you take the Ford pledge at its face, uh, it's, then it's not just a transit debate. It now 
does broaden out into an infrastructure debate because they're under that scheme, uh, under that line of thinking, there would be um, significant funds available for non-transit infrastructure. And that's got some people just rubbing their hands in glee because that was not an issue. I know some people are trying to draw comparators. I've seen some of these comments on social media in the last uh, four or five days, John, uh, saying, look, at this was she was dissented in the last election because we elected Mayor Fred, and Fred was a supporter of LRT. Uh, it wasn't that black and white, if you recall. There were three major mayoral candidates uh, for the job last year, last election, rather. Fred Eisenberger, of course, Brad Clark, and, and Brian McCaddy. Uh, Brian was dead, uh, uh, totally in favor of, of, of LRT, totally. That was his thing. Uh, Brad wanted bus for a, a rapid transit, but Mayor Fred seemed to take the middle ground on this, saying, yes, he supports it, but he was going to, you know, get this citizens panel and see what they had to say, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, of course, that never happened, because uh, shortly after that, the, the, the government wrote in here and just said, we're going to do this. But uh, there's, there were other factors involved in that election that, that are not involved in this one. Or maybe the most recent one, of course, is like you say, the fact that the money's still there. That wasn't on the table four years ago, was it? No, there was, there was no flexibility. And, and then, of course, when you know, the kind of the showdown debate took place in last year or last spring, um, you, know, you had a very concerted effort by uh, certainly uh, Ted McMeekin was attending the council meetings. Uh, while the debate was going on as to whether to allow, it was yet another one of these incremental letting it go forward for another step uh, kind of deals. And in this case, it was going to be an environmental assessment. But, you know, council was confronted with a very stark um, option, which was essentially LRT or nothing. And uh, that shaped, uh, because a number of, of sitting councillors were quite uh, adamant that they were opposed to LRT, uh, Collins, Whitehead, uh, Jackson, uh, to a certain degree, and all three of them rolled over on the issue of uh, uh, losing the money. So, you know, there was, frankly, an element of uh, coercion, uh, you know, brought to bear, and it worked. All right, and that's the mayor's race, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in just a couple of minutes, but what about it with each individual riding, a ward now? Uh, because obviously uh, th- this is something that's going to be talked about at the doors as, as uh, councillors or potential councillors start looking for votes, and, and you got to figure this issue is going to come up. And, and I think we know where there's a lot of core support, but it's not mutually exclusive to the downtown area. But is, is this going to have a factor in who's going to get elected at that level too? I mean, are they going to have to make a stand and say, I'm for it or against it? I think it will in some wards. Uh, uh, for instance, Ward 1, I think uh, there's a very clear choice there where you have Carol Lazic, who, who appeared several times at council and has lobbied very hard against LRT, and she's formed a group uh, of LRT opponents. So you have her uh, against uh, a number of candidates who uh, all favor LRT. So there's a ward where I think it will make a difference. Um, not so sure about some of the other lower city wards, whether the issue is that stark. Um, I did a little survey of, of just the, the, looked at the whole 80 odd, um, all, uh, council candidates across the board. And in the lower city, uh, though, and those who declared themselves for or against LRT, uh, the anti LRT in the lower five wards outnumbered pro LRT by about two to one. Really? But then, yes, uh, now that's candidates, that's not any kind of a poll. But uh, nonetheless, there are anti-LRT candidates running in every single ward in the lower city. Uh, But when you get to the other 
10 wards, uh, the, L- the anti-LRT candidates outnumber pro-LRT, again, by about a two-to-one margin. So there's a geographic uh, divide as well. But but here's here's the rub uh, because that may well be those are the people that are are looking for votes and and want to be elected to this council, but but what about the voters themselves? Uh, I mean, this is a burning issue for the mayor's race. It's certainly going to be a burning issue for people that want to get elected to city council. We get that, but is it is it the big issue as far as voters are concerned? I mean, downtown, you know, this is going to go right through their backyard in some cases, literally. Uh, so, so there's a, there's an interest there it's because it's going to have a direct impact on that. Anybody who lives along the proposed route, that's that's what's going to be happening. But it, you know, if you live up in the South Mountain, do you really care? Is is that the issue that's going to say, yeah, that's going to vote, motivate me to go and vote for somebody? Well, it, it's only anecdotal, but I would I would say it is an issue with with voters uh, because uh, I've talked to a number of candidates who have been door to door. Um, I talked to candidates who who were campaigning in the last provincial election, and and they were getting LRT at the door during the provincial election, uh, because as you know, voters tend to they they don't break down the three levels of government necessarily in neat little packages. They talk about whatever's on their mind. Anybody that knocks on the door, they figure that's a politician. I, I can remember one of my early municipal elections. Uh, it was just around the time of one of the uh, the teachers' lockouts with the Harris government, and that's all I heard of the doors. They didn't want to talk about taxes or sewers or, or expressways or anything else. Get the teachers back to work. And, well, I wish I could. Yeah. Well, uh, so so I think it is an issue, Bill. Uh, anybody that I've talked to that's been doing uh, any door-to-door work, and it's still still early, but, you know, they're out there. Uh, they're out there now um, knocking on doors, and uh, certainly... The feedback I got from people who were uh, working the uh, the festivals uh, that we've had thus far, uh, it, it clearly is an issue. People are spontaneously identifying it when they come up to these uh, booths. Are they are they formulating opinions? I mean, because when we do segments, we're going to do a phone segment about this in just a little bit here. Uh, and I'm going to be asking people as to whether or not they've they've made up their mind because uh, because I'm just wondering I'm I'm just hearing an awful lot of 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 people right now that just seem to be waffling on this and say well I'm not so sure you know because well maybe the money's better spent someplace else uh, the, the, it seemed to be last election four years ago uh, many more people seem to have made up their minds about this now there there seems to be some doubt in some people's minds either for or against. Well, I think it goes back to just the the climate that existed. Um, you know, uh, four years ago in the in the previous election, it it looked like there was um, a pretty hard commitment on the part of council. And again, that commitment was ambiguous to a certain extent because it was uh, we're in favor of LRT, but only if we get one hundred percent funding which is not quite the same thing as saying I've studied the two forms of transit and I've made this decision based on weighing the evidence that this is better than that. It was more about who's going to pay for it and it kind of, you know, if you really want to do this thing, that's fine, but you've got to pay for it. So, you know, there, there's always been a lot of ambiguity uh, around the issue in my mind. And, and I think the only difference really is that uh, in the previous four years we had a sense that... Uh, the province was driving the bus uh, largely, and that we were sort of uh, a tool of whatever council decided to do, uh, and and the province. And now there is wide open flexibility being offered by uh, the current government. So, I, I think that's the difference. If if you 
if you feel like you really don't have a choice, then you know is it is it plan is it plan A or is it nothing? Uh, but now we've got a, a pretty clear plan A, plan B being offered. How much credibility to put in the promise from from the Ford government that the money's going to be there? And and I, forgive my skepticism, but I think it's well founded. Uh, governments say they're not going to do something right up until the time that they do it. Uh, we all know that there, there's going to be some financial and budgetary pressures on this government. Uh, they've already walked back a couple of the promises that they've they've talked about during the election campaign. Uh, this is a significant one with an awful lot of money, and and I, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, when they finally sit down with the bean counters at Queens Park, if they're going to say, you know, Mr. Premier, if you're trying to find money, why are you sending this kind of money to Hamilton when the, this is needed in Toronto, this is needed in Ottawa, yada yada yada? That uh, you know, we don't even know what's going on behind closed doors right now. Well, I'm sure when they get through with the audit, they're going to find that the picture is ugly. Um, but having said that, uh, you know, they've, they've been pressed on this thing at least three times uh, in the last couple of months, and every time it's come down with the same answer, uh, we're going to allow the money to be spent. And you've got to remember that this money that's been allocated, not only for Hamilton but for the entire GTA, uh, this is an allocation that was made several years ago, and it doesn't mean necessarily that the money is sitting there in a pool, but the the commitment to spend the money has been made. And I, I think the government would have a hell of a time trying to walk it back after at least three times saying that they were going to allow flexibility here in Hamilton, especially because it was, re- you know, these are recent declarations. It's not one of these deals where they make the promise during the campaign. And then after the election, uh, all of a sudden there's radio silence. They've made uh, the commitment a couple of times since they've been elected and since they've had some sense, I suspect, of what the books look like. Well, and again, I understand that totally, but uh, by the same token, uh, you know, there's the old uh, political moray that if you're going to do something to really tick people off, you do it in the first couple of months of the mandate so they forget about it three and a half years later. Yeah, well, uh, arguably, um, uh, allowing uh, money to be spent on non-LRT would tick a lot of people off as well. So, you know, that may be, who knows? I mean, Bill, we're sitting here saying, are they going to do it or aren't they? Uh, all I can say is they've, they've been pretty clear uh, on multiple occasions in recent time, and uh, I, I don't know how they would bring themselves to a point of, of walking it back, uh, you know, after they've been pressed three times at least that I can count uh, in in the last three or four months. Yeah, the other element here, too, is uh, we talked about even four years ago, John, uh, during that mayoral race, uh, whoever wins this thing, or if it's a Mayor Fred who's reelected or Vito Scro or anybody else that, that ends up uh, wearing the chain of office, that's only one vote on council. This does not swing the debate one way or another necessarily. No, it doesn't. I mean, it, it clearly removes uh, what a number of councillors felt was a gun to their head, uh, and it allows them flexibility, but that doesn't mean that uh, we still couldn't get a vote that uh, uh, allows the LRT to go ahead. Although I, I, in some of the councillors that I've talked to, I, I suggest that they're they're definitely rethinking their position and keeping a very close eye on what's coming out of Queens Park. Well, we'll see. Uh, as I say, we've got a couple of months to go, and uh, things are going to really start to heat up if uh, they haven't already. I'm sure if you've attended one of those festivals in Dundas or Winona, or uh, you've, you've already been in touch with some of these folks that are running for office, and uh, they've bent your ear about how they feel about it, and we'll see how this goes. Uh, John, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. 
Very good, Bill. Thanks very much. John Best uh, from the Bay Observer. Uh, what say you about this? Is uh, LRT and transportation and public transit going to be the key issue for you? And, and I say that guardedly. I mean, I think, you know, we've had that discussion, and there's always a big reaction on social media every time we bring the subject up, and I think that's justifiable. But by the same token, I mean, if you live in Flamborough or Dundas, uh, I mean, area rating's a big issue for you. Uh, there's servicing issues. Uh, there's uh, a number of different issues, depending on uh, where you live in this great city of ours. And, and that's always the case, of course, especially when you get to municipal politics. Uh, the old uh, famous name from uh, Tip O'Neill, the famous speaker of the uh, United States Congress, was, you know, all politics is local. Well, that's never more true than it is, of course, at municipal politics. Uh, neighborhood local, not just municipal. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's a, a new sheriff in town, well, in the west end of the city anyway, the very important McMaster Innovation Park, which has been one of the key building blocks, of course, in Hamilton's economic renaissance, uh, has a new a CEO. Uh, he's uh, Well, he's not really new to the pl- position, or the place for that matter. Uh, Ty Shattuck is formerly with Traveris Incorporated, uh, is now the new CEO. Uh, he joins us here, here in studio. Uh, thanks for coming in today, by the way. Great to see you, Ty, and congratulations. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Well, it's just across the road for us, of course, because you guys <laughs> are just uh, just down the street from us here, of course, on Longwood Road. Uh, uh, but this is a homecoming for you of sorts, isn't it? Yeah, it, it very much is. Um, when we were at Triveris, we were one of the uh, founding tenants uh, when it was still actually under construction. So there was only a few tenants at the time, and there was all this construction and dust, and we were part of that early days. And, what attracted uh, you guys to that project in the first place? So Triveris— Because you're just the kind of c- tenant they wanted. Yeah. Well, well, Triveris invested in early stage companies. We were looking for technologies at a stage where it was kind of a twinkle in a researcher's eye, and we were going to help build it out and turn it into real products and real businesses. And the MIP mission of being a focal point, a hub for technology um, that is transitioning from that twinkle stage into a a full-blown business was very compelling. It was just an obvious place for us to set up shop, and it it was a fantastic fantastic place to do business. Now, we've had, uh, just to do this historically, because this is this is your background, this is right in your wheelhouse anyway, we've had incubator projects in the past, other cities have had them as well, but this is this is taking it to the next level, what, what MIP was doing back in those early days. Well, for sure. I think, <clears throat> I think there's one thing to have an incubator, which is very much focused on the individual entrepreneur, and you, you give them a space to be. I, I think when you get to a research park, an incubator is just one piece of that. In fact, there's a number of incubators yeah. within the MIP. What a research park is trying to do is, is frankly, be a bridge between the fundamental research that's occurring in, you know, in McMaster and the, and the partner hospitals and stuff, and businesses. And so it, it's not just for those startups or those entrepreneurs, but also for the financers, for the scale-up entities, for the regulatory bodies, a whole community that surrounds those entrepreneurs and kind of gives them the uh, uh, the fuel to, to go from idea to reality. Well, it's uh, as I've talked to some of the, those entrepreneurs that have benefited from, from the Innovation Park, though, Ty, uh, you know, we've had them obviously on the lines of their competition. We always talk with the, with the finalists and the winners about this. And some of these companies have just, you know, done some magnificent things. Uh, they always seem to describe it as it's like one-stop shopping for entrepreneurs. It's all it's all there. The help that they need, the assistance, the expertise, uh, basically under one roof. I mean, you can just have to go up the elevator to go and talk to somebody. Well, I'm glad to hear that's what they're saying because that that's that's the intent. At the end of the day, the research park 
it isn't just a bunch of buildings. It, it's, it's the people. And, and how do you intermingle um, those technical entrepreneurs with people that can help them move their ideas forward? And so the idea is rather than have them all spread out, you know, if you're having coffee with them and breaking bread with them and uh, seeing them uh, on breaks, you know, it's very easy to ask for advice. And, and that, it's kind of like the primordial mix. If you put all those things together, then it's more likely ideas are going to move forward. We've done a lot of shows on location uh, f- over the years, of course, uh, when it was first started, and of course, through the competitions. Uh, and and I, 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 now that you're back here, I, I, I wanted to get your read on this. There's a vibe when you walk in that building, isn't there? There very much is, I, yeah. I know people say, it's oh, come exciting. on, that's a cliche. No, there, there's a real, there's a feeling of, there's an energy, a feeling of, uh, of I don't know what it is. There's just a, a positive vibe from just about everybody you talk to and even within the building itself that there's something going on here. Oh, very much so. I And I have to say, I haven't spent a lot of time at the park over the last five years. Uh, but that's something that's very noticeably different and and impressive. Everybody is just super keen and excited. That vibe is very, very real. It's palatable. All right. So you've been away for a few years. I mean, you're still in the neighborhood, but for I mean, sure, you haven't yeah. worked within, you know, that physical building for the last little while. Uh, you've come back now. Compare what you saw when, when you guys were there as one of the early tenants to the way that this, this operation is going on now, the, the progress you've seen. Well, I, I, I think... There's a whole lot less dust. <laughs> so when we when we showed up, uh, the old Westinghouse facility yeah. um, was still, you know, partly a warehouse. So there was all sorts of dust and construction, um, and I think the tenancy was extremely low. Right, you barely see anybody when you're walking around the building. Nick Marcatos, who was uh, was acting CEO yeah. for the last little while, of course, after. Uh, Zach left. Uh, he still got pictures because he was at that initial meeting with me, and he, he brought a, a series of them in here. Uh, this place looked. I, I, I told him at the time. I remember. I said, "Good luck with this." I don't see how <laughs> anybody could. It's magnificent, but you you you. you Enjoy that magnificence and appreciate it even more when you know where you came from. And you saw that as you guys moved in. Yeah. Well, kudos to Nick and the whole McMaster uh, team that had the vision because this was a – it wasn't exactly, you know, an amazing place to look at. It was quite dilapidated. Maybe that's a strong word. Yeah, been empty for a long time. But they had the vision of what it could be, and, and now it is. Um, and not only is it a bunch of great buildings, but look at the people that are working there. So, so that foresight they had, I, I think that was phenomenal. And I was honored to be part of it then. I, I remember when the CanMet facility came in, they were putting in the uh, geothermal uh, conducts or whatever it is, and they were banging for days and days. The windows would shake <laughs> and your water and coffee would shake as they put that stuff. Now it's all established. And, and there's more to come. Talk to me about the importance of, of marrying this this. this idea now of, of bringing academia and business together. Uh, I don't want to necessarily say they were always in silos, but I don't know that they communicated the way that they they do these days and, and, and how we've benefited from that. Well, I, I think when you look back, when you look at uh, the region and you look at the country as a whole, we, we Canada generally gets poor marks on innovation. But what that what, what Canada is really good at, and what McMaster is phenomenal at, is fundamental research. The ideas and the intellectual property and the intellect that is coming out of there is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Where we where we've been challenged is how do we turn that? How do we monetize that? How do we turn that into a business? Um, now, on the other side, business in Canada is looking for new ideas, new technology, and frankly, new blood uh, to support growth in the future. And so the idea is how do we bridge those? How do we bridge all of that raw materials that comes out of the universities and the research 
to the business that need it. And that's something that's that's been challenging for the region and frankly the country for a long time. And so the mission is to be that bridge, to be a place where it's kind of a stepping stone toward toward business. You know, business businesses have a growth uh, imperative. And so a lot of medium-sized or small medium-sized companies, they don't have the R&D budget to go compete with global entities. Mm-hmm. But if they can tap into what's being done at universities or in other companies, that allows them to then bring that into their business and, and go chase glo- growth on a global basis that wouldn't otherwise be ca- uh, 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 capable of. Business has changed, though. I mean, entrepreneurs are, are, are you know, much more prevalent than they used to be 10, 15 years ago. You know, we we always I remember having the, the discussion when you, when these guys opened years ago. Now, uh, you know, you'd go through university and whatever your, your chosen discipline was, engineering, whatever the case might be, uh, and then you get your degree and go find a job being an engineer someplace. <laughs> but now we've got people that say, no, 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 I'm going to be my own boss. I'm going to start up my own company, uh, which is a daunting task to begin with. But uh, it's it's. You guys supply this need, though, at the Innovation Park to simply say, these are the steps you need to take. Uh, You may be, you know, you're a fabulous uh, right side of the guy, but you need a business sense. And if you don't necessarily have that expertise, we know people that do. Uh, and and you're opening doors for people. You know what? I, I that that is the mission. And I think, you know, becoming an entrepreneur has become romanticized. Uh, you know, over the last decade or so, it is just brutally hard work, and and it's and it can be really lonely. And there's so many pieces. Uh, for example, one of the pieces that people don't appreciate. Certainly, you need you know the technology. You need the business acumen. You need the finance. You also need regulatory support. You don't realize that just about any technology that we introduce today, there's some regulatory agency that that, that has rules about how it can be deployed. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Health Canada, if it's uh, biotech, which is a big focus here, or Transport Canada, if it's automotive. And, and understanding what they're, you know, and those guys... Uh, we often think of those hurdles. They're 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 trying to bring great ideas uh, to make the world safer and better, but they have to make it safe. Um, and so even having them at the table is an important thing. You 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 have to have you know, maybe it's an overused word, but an ecosystem available to support all of that. And that ecosystem has to be diverse. Yes, technology. Yes, business. Yes, finance. Yes, regulatory. All of those things. And that's what the park is all about. Is how do you create a community? That is that ecosystem. But it, within that network, and this is one of the things that I find amazing about this, uh, you've got communications uh, with with other successful business folks from outside of there, too. I mean, you've got a young entrepreneur that says, well, I, I, I'm not quite sure. Well, you should call so-and-so. Well, they, they don't have time for me. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. In other words, you, you, you build that bridge for them and say, you know, this, this person here who's got this very successful business would be happy to sit down and talk to you about this. I, you know what I think? One of the things you talked about, the vibe, I think one of the things that's amazing about um, business and the community in, in, in Hamilton is the business folks really want to help the aspiring uh, entrepreneurs. There, there's very much a motivation to, you know, what can I do to help you? Um, and, and tapping into that will and that goodwill is, is, is an important thing. Uh, the evolution of, of the Innovation Park, Ty, as you, as you come back here after being away for a few years, uh, obviously, one of the key components, I guess, is, is the deal that has been struck now, this sharing of information uh, with Kitchener-Waterloo, with Burlington, Toronto, et cetera. This, uh, the team has grown. I mean, we used to look at KW and other areas as competitors. They're partners now. That's right. Uh, I, I think, 
you know, research parks as an entity have evolved over over the years as well. And, you know, how do you make a good research park or how do you make a good incubator? And the realization, just like businesses and clusters, is you've got to kind of find your, your sweet spot. And I, I think, you know, MIP is a great example of how it's aligned with Hamilton and what's going on at, at the, uh, in the health area and the university. But, you know, it's where it's where ideas and people uh, intersect where the magic happens. So, you know, how can we tap into what's going on in Waterloo or Toronto and, and, and then make something bigger and better? So there is a community here, but then there's a broader community of, of research parks across across the country. And frankly, you know, across borders. Just this morning, I was talking to uh, um, some research park folks from uh, from Buffalo and Dubai about, you know, how they could uh, collaborate to, to bring ideas across across the ocean, across the border. It took us a while to find our way, though, didn't it? I mean, I, I can still remember when we saw the great success in KW with, with BlackBerry, for instance, and, and, and there was a, a feeling that, boy, yeah, we, we need to do that. No, I said, no, BlackBerry's already been done. You've got to think something else. You, you know, we had to find our niche, and certainly we've done that. And, and I, I think there's a, a, a respect for that now that, hey, this is what these guys are good at. Yeah. That's what KW is good at. Uh, you know, let's, let's marry these two ideas. And when you get, a, you know, a federal minister coming in and said, hey, here's a check for a few million dollars, guys, because we think you guys are doing great work. That's a fabulous endorsement for the work that is being done. Absolutely. Like anything, you know, you go from an idea to reality, it's never a straight line. And so you've got to, you know, bounce off a few walls before you get to where, where reality is. And, and, the, and the truth is that uh, research parks and everybody, you got to find the niche, find your sweet spot where you're unique and differentiated. That's true for businesses. It's true for entrepreneurs. And it's true for research parks. Where do we go from here? Uh, as you look forward, I mean, you've been you're hitting the ground running. You don't officially even start uh, for another week or so, but you've already you're on the phone now because uh, you're part of that vibe now. You're you're starting to create you know that that element of it too. But when we see how this park has evolved and how it's developed and and how it's helped this economy, uh, what are the next steps? What do you see happening? Well, you know, I think when you look back at the last ten years of MIP, they've built the infrastructure. I, I've, I've used the analogy of a, of a ship. You know, you spend the first few years building the ship. Once the ship is in place and it's seaworthy, the question is, where do you sail it to? And I think MIP has spent the last 10 years building up the infrastructure, the facilities, the people. And the question then is, you know, where do we sail this to? And, and I think what we got to do is is facilitate more of that bridging from from the research to commercialization. I think there's a couple components to it. One is there's a huge emphasis on startups, and and let me say that I fully support that. But let me also say that startups aren't the only business entity that's capable of bringing ideas to life. Um, there's a big emphasis in Canada today on something called scale-ups. So scale-up isn't a startup. It's a company somewhere between 50, uh, 15, I should say, and say $80 million. Privately held company, and they have a growth imperative. So they already have uh, the, the brand, perhaps, or the markets. But you know what they need? They need new ideas and fresh blood and fresh entrepreneurs to bring their ideas to life. So I think sometimes you, you take that idea and you put it in a startup. Sometimes you put it in a scale-up, and sometimes you put it into a multinational. So my view— How do you know which fits into which? Well, there's a whole bunch of theory about (laughs) types of innovation, but I think it's 
Um, it's about fitting the, the category of innovation to, to, uh, to the business. If a business already has a foothold in, in the market that's applicable, well, then let's, you know, we can find a good match. Well, then it's best to go into a scale-up or a multinational. But if it's a brand-new nascent market and a nascent uh, uh, technology, then that's where startups play. But let me say that startups... You know, the odds of success are startups are really low, <laughs> right? Sure. Because there's two risks. You have the risk of the technology and you have the risk of startups. So you ha- kind of have risk squared, if you will. So as you go to scale-ups, if I can mitigate that, one of those risks by saying I'm going to take a risky technology, new technology, and put it into a, into a scale-up, you know, I've already addressed part of that risk. And so it's not about replacing startups with scale-ups. It's about having the right mix so that as we look uh, to researchers and the IP, we can kind of figure out where what's the fastest and most efficient way to bring those ideas to life. Pretty exciting times. <laughs> Very much so. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled. I've got a lot of learning to do. I think it's going to be <laughs> drinking from the fire hose for the next, uh, next few months as I catch up to all the stuff that's been happening here. Well, you know where the coffee shop is on the ground floor <laughs> there, and I'm sure you'll be spending a lot of time talking to some folks. Uh, welcome back. It's, it's great to have you back, and it's great to have you with uh, at MIP uh, as, as we, they go to the next steps. And, and uh, of course, everybody benefits. Uh, the old cliche, of course, all ships rise with the high tide. Uh, we'll talk again, I know, a lot in the future. Thanks for coming in, Ty. Thank you very much for having me. Ty Shattuck, the uh, new CEO, of course, of the McMaster Innovation Park. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.